millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, David Stubbs on the story of electronic music in his latest book, Mars by 1980. David Stubbs is a British author and music journalist. Alongside Simon Reynolds, he was one of the co-founders of the Oxford magazine Monitor, before going on to join the staff at Melody Maker. He later worked at the NME, Uncut and Vox, as well as The Wire, and his work has appeared in The Times, The Sunday Times, Spin, The Guardian... The Quietus and GQ. He's written a number of books, including Future Days, Kraut Rock and the Building of Modern Germany, and Fear of Music, Why People Get Rothko But Don't Get Stockhausen, both of which you might have heard us discuss on previous Little Atoms. I should also say that David is also a regular guest on the second best podcast in the world, <laughs> Chart Music, um, and he's now the author of Mars by 1980. In fact, this is the paperback of Mars by 1980, the story of electronic music, which we're going to be talking about. David, welcome back to Little Atoms. Lovely to be back, yeah. Um, so let's talk about what the, the idea behind Mars by 1980 is, first of all. Well, the title came from actually way back from when I was actually at university with Simon Rams. I decided that, you mentioned Monitor magazine, that I was going to do a sort of in-depth study of the year 1975. I don't know why. So I went to the Bodleian Library and the first thing I did to sort of try and sort of test the sense of 1975 was to call up loads and loads of issues of the sun, because you can get anything, absolutely anything at the Bodleian Library. Um, I think I fairly swiftly realised that research on a sort of scale like that was a bit <laughs> beyond my sort of stamina and endurance at that point. But I did sort of go through all of these um, um, issues of the sun. And there was a recurring thing, uh, some of the ones I looked at, about how this is 1975, and it was like, when we go to Mars, because the, um, the Apollo missions had ended three, three years earlier, 1972, and I think it was, yeah, they were saying, well, obviously, the moon's done, obviously. Mars next, Mars by 1980. And obviously, looking even even looking back at 1985, I realised that that had completely stalled, and that was like ridiculously kind of naive, and, and just, and it sort of don't make the sense that we're in a kind of a, a post-space age, so... I mean, obviously, I didn't have the idea immediately to write that book. You know, when when I did that, this was about 1985. But it's something that kind of stuck with me. And when I was sort of casting around for a title, that little phrase popped into my head um, because it just implies this idea of like lost ideas, lost futures, or whatever, which is one of the themes of the book. Indeed, and and a lot of the music you talk about here has this sort of, I guess, naive, wistful thinking mm. about possible futures, yeah. which 
You don't really get in EDM, do you? No, you don't really, I know. And I mean, by there comes a certain point in the trajectory of the story is the eventual ubiquity of electronic music. And in a sense, part of what I'm writing about is a nostalgia for its kind of strangeness, its otherness. Um, it's wonderful dreams and visions, utopian visions about how mankind, humanity can somehow exceed itself. It's like, you know, beyond political, really. It's beyond sort of socialism or anything like that. It's It's, you know, the idea that, like you know, that that human beings could meld with machines or whatever or explore the cosmos or whatever and develop all of these capacities. And I mean, at the pace that technology was developing around the sort of turn of the 19th, 20th century, 20th century I mean, you know, with things like x-rays or whatever, then really nothing really seemed out of bounds at that particular point. There were so many kind of things all happening at once that, you know, you really could imagine that, you know, 100 years hence, you know, we'd possibly have achieved a lot more technologically than perhaps we actually have. So the book, let's talk about the format, because it's it's a partial history, shall we say. Yes, it, it is, very much, in in both senses of the word, yes, definitely. I mean, I think it's, it's I mean, it's, it's the story of electronic music. I think publishers always like to, you know, you've got to be very definite, you know, all other stories of electronic music and bugger off, because here comes the £800 gorilla that's going to sort of drive them off the shelves. But no, it is, in a sense, it is partial, it's personal. Um, the, the particular things I wanted to emphasise and not emphasise. One thing I didn't want to make it was the, quite often when histories of music are done, they're kind of success stories, commercial success stories. And so, for instance, I decided not to um, talk very much about Jean-Michel Jarre, who I imagine a lot of people think is an absolute giant of electronic music because he was so enormously successful. But I ultimately tend to think that the music he did wasn't that good. It was kind of banal, all this sonny Lumiere stuff. So I prefer to sort of privilege people who I think were profoundly influential, but not necessarily commercially successful. So Suicide, for example, I'd much rather write about them rather than just sort of grudgingly write sort of large amounts about people just because they're successful. Um, I want to talk, I guess, to begin with about the book, the beginning of the book, you, you talk about, um, well, what you describe as a prehistory. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess let's, let, let's go there now. The, what's the first sort of inklings of something that could conceivably be described as electronic music? I mean, for me, there are there's a few things like these innovations like the telharmonium or whatever, which are kind of very fitful, and there's various sort of attempts at keyboard or whatever that give off electric shocks and all this kind of daft stuff. But really, I think that it's a kind of conceptual foundation, and that takes place with the Art of Noises manifesto written by Luigi Russolo in whatever it is, 1913 or whatever. Because um, not only does he write the manifesto, but he attempts to build these kind of prototype sort of synthesizers, these intro, these noise makers you know, with these large, great boxes with huge speakers and levers that can play this whole variety of sounds. And I mean, the idea that Russell had was that the sonic environment had changed with industrialisation in the 20th century and that orchestras were, as he would have put it, passiest and strings no longer did it. And I think it was also a sense that, like... So it wasn't just that you had to kind of reflect, you know, this age of, like, you know, backfiring cars and industrial horns and sirens and whatever... Um, it was also about sort of collapsing the walls between art and life, in a sense, that, that it was anticipating the idea that, like, sound wasn't just something, you know, like classical music, wasn't something like hung remotely like a chandelier, you know, above the fray or whatever, that, that music would be composed of the stuff of life. And, I mean, eventually that kind of, you know, that does happen, you know, with, with the whole music concrete and subsequently samplers or whatever, you know. You talk about the, the first 
few times that Russell yeah. demonstrates this machine. It's not exactly... No, it's just it. I mean, the sound, unfortunately, yes, they, people just turned up to... Um, it's a bit like the old sort of, if you would, P.G. Woodhouse, the tough eggs that sort of quite often turn up to the um, performances that Bertie Wooster's friends put on. And um, and I think quite often people with the futurists and Dardis events and stuff like that turned up basically to sort of jeer. And frankly, yeah, the things kind of malfunctioned, the noise noises that they made weren't exactly kind of sort of formidable and um and quite frankly you know a sort of you know a, a chamber musical you know a chamber music quartet would have probably kind of you know out noised them at that point um but it was the principle it was establishing the principle these instruments fell into abeyance there are kind of recordings of them um or attempts to kind of simulate them and you know they sound pretty awful the thing is you know the futurists they produce a lot of bad art <laughs> a lot of bad music and they were fascists as well which is an unfortunate thing because i do try and make a claim for electronic music and it's and it's abstraction is kind of being a soundtrack to an anti-fascist mindset it's slightly unfortunate that that people with kind of kind of foundation were actually fascists but um but greater things came later and the other person that I hadn't come across before but was a sort of ahead of his time pioneer is Edgar Varese. Edgar Varese, yeah. Yeah, Varese. So this sort of you know, French-Italian composer, really. And I think that he, he, was always, you know, he was casting around all of his working life for instruments that would kind of realise the kind of musical visions that he had. And when you hear his... So mostly, in most of his career, he wrote orchestral music, but he did incorporate things like sirens, for example. It's almost honorary electronic music because it's kind of... You get the sense that it's not sort of linear in the way it's composed. It's organised sound. It's huge, you know, it's immense, great blocks of sound that kind of almost like erupt spontaneously like skyscrapers what have you and it's clear you know and it's orchestral music but it's orchestral music gagging dying for some sort of further means of kind of you know expression to break it down still further um, to amplify it even more and um yeah and it's only towards the end of his life that eventually so magnetic tape is you know it comes in after the war and eventually he's able to kind of produce works like Désert with what he calls interpolations and he makes these sort of music concrete time recordings of like factories and what have you and that's incorporated alongside sections of you know conventional orchestral music then towards the end of his life he writes he's commissioned to write this great work um, for this Le Corbusier exhibition Poem Electronique and it's an absolutely wonderful piece that even now retains a sort of eerie, sort of futuristic quality because the, the, these ideas weren't sort of immediately kind of boiled down into anything particularly kind of popular or whatever uh, for, not for a long time. Um, and in a sense, he's also one of the people that established the principle of like, there's music, but there's also, you know, there's organised sound. And I think this is one of the great differences of electronic music is organised sound is not really about virtuosity. It's about having a sort of strong conceptual sense, having a great imagination and thinking if we juxtapose this with that. Um, and that's very different, really, in a sense, from conventional music training and sort of con- conventional aspirations and achievements of music. You've mentioned music concrete a couple of times. Mm. For anybody who doesn't know, tell us what that was and who some of the Well, essentially, it's, so, it's inaugurated by Pierre Schaeffer, a French composer just after the war. It's, it, it's the idea that, like, the stuff of sound isn't like the playing of an instrument. It can be something like... You can take something off a record player, for instance, for example, and, like, make that the kind of stuff of your composition. Or what he did, you know, he t- took out his tape records and recorded things like, you know... For instance, um, you know, train horns and things like that, and made these kind of little sort of symphonies. And then he went back to the studio, was able to kind of manipulate these things, speed them up, distort them, slow them down, or whatever. And you know, and and, and that became, as it were, everyday sound became the kind of clay of a new music. Um, 
and we should talk about there's a, a, a couple of um, women pioneers that mm. you know are incredibly influential but definitely overlooked. Obviously, uh, Delia Derbyshire of the, yeah. uh, the Radiophonic Workshop, also um, yeah. Daphne Oram. That's right. Um, let's talk about the, their influence on on. on the well, absolutely, and it isn't. I mean, there's also there's other compos- composers like Elian Redig and um, Pauline Oliveros were doing mm. various things. But I mean, it, what's fascinating, I suppose, about I mean, I think that Delia Derbyshire is probably particularly fascinating because she. Um, effectively created the theme music to Doctor Who and that would obviously be a, you know that's a product of the radiophonic workshop and it's such a sort of familiar piece of music that you almost take its strangeness for granted but it's but if you kind of also but she wasn't credited for it the person who gets the credit for the theme music is Ron Grainer the same guy that wrote the Steptoe and Son theme I remember thinking at the time blimey he's versatile but really this is a studio creation it really consists in what she actually does you know the treatment that um, she gives to it it may be that like Delia Derbyshire to some extent internalise a sense of, I don't know, female inferiority or whatever that was like impressing her from all sides. A lot of people thought what they were doing was effectively sound effects, you know, they're similar to the chap who shakes the sheet, you know, to create a thunderstorm effect and things like that. But it was a lot more profound than that. The implications were a great deal more profound and it really, really opened up vistas. I mean, you know, she does these pieces of... Um, what you might call a bit the equivalent of like the German Hirschspiel in 1964 with this um, sound article Barry Beaumont and it's like just quotes of people talking about God or dreams and things like that and she creates this wonderful swirling proto-ambient effect in 1964. Um, there's another little bit, it may be around 1970-71, there's just this short clip of her saying, um, it just says, I don't worry about this, it's um, most inconsequential, nothing to be concerned about. And then you hear this clip of what she does and it sounds like it's this fast cut techno type sort of speed you know it could be written by the Aphex twin or something like that um, but I think that you know she perhaps never quite took herself seriously as an artist or whatever Daphne Oram I think you know she had this sort of scheme things like Oramics and she had this idea that like sort of um, drawings or whatever could be transcribed into sound and she had a much sort of more theoretical uh, approach and was perhaps a stronger character in lots of ways because she left the BBC and set up her own sort of Institute of you know of research and what have you, I mean, but she you know made made sort of tremendous incursions in popular incursions. For instance, the film um, The Innocents, um, and again uncredited, you know she creates these magnificent, um, really really still today, you know like really quite scary effects, you know that occur in in, in that film. Um, so I guess that what they did is that, you know they were steeped in you know what music concrete and things like that, which is a sort of considered extreme avant garde thing. But they just showed how these things could be you know, have a popular application. Um, before we move on to anything more, con- oh, contemporary is not quite the right word, but, you know, mm. a bit, a little later, um, I want to talk about when you first discovered this music for yourself. Well, yeah, I mean, oddly enough, I mean, Doctor Who was probably when I first discovered it, but I wasn't really conscious of, of being electronic music. Um, that would have been the first thing I heard. And then I suppose... Um, Probably, probably Kraftwerk, like a lot of people, when Autobahn was um, a success around, I think it was eventually 1975. I probably, I would have almost certainly seen them on Tomorrow's World. Um, I don't think even then, though, I was a kid, like a lot of people at the time, I don't think I realised... There were always like, there were lots of sort of little synth novelty hits and things like that, and I thought, well, this is really nice, but it's just, you know, 
it's going to be like hot butter, popcorn or something like that. This is going to be, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. And, and of course, they looked slightly jokey. You know, I mean, in those days, it was considered inherently comical for uh, Germans to be making any kind of pop music and doing in their kind of legislative Teutonic accents. And yet they were extremely clever about the way they dealt with all of that. I suppose it was that. I mean, Donna Summer, I Feel Love would have made, you know, had a huge impact on when I first heard it. But I don't think it was until... I got into my mid-teens and I started reading the music press and looking at music in a very discerning way that I really became... That's when I really started to become immersed in anything electronic. Um, I think it was perhaps the nature of the way that I listened to music. For me, it was a bedroom thing. It was a slightly antisocial thing rather than a social thing. It was almost like perhaps, you know, listening to people like Sun Ra and Stockhouse and Perry and all these things that I kind of um, immersed myself in. It was almost like creating this wonderful fortress of sonic solitude in my bedroom, you know, sad boy. But uh, but it genuinely, I, what I genuinely couldn't understand is when I tried to share this music with other people, I didn't want to, want to keep it to myself, I wanted to share it with people. They just said, what the bloody hell is this rubbish? You know, and it, you, know, the, 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 you know, I was really taken aback at that point by people's sheer antipathy to avant-garde music. There's a, 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 a story I've heard you tell before about your um, your, your father hearing oh, yeah. the music. Well, this was, yeah, music, music by Faust with this kind of a doom, 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 doom. Yeah, and I remember him coming thundering up the stairs assuming that the boiler was on the blink. And, uh, so did I. Know. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to David Stubbs. We're talking about his latest book, Mars by 1980, the story of electronic music. And David, we have been talking mainly about European artists mm. and the pioneers of electronic music so far. 
And um, you mentioned Sun Ra just before we broke, so I want to talk about, I guess, Sun Ra and Miles Davis and the sort mm. of electrification of, of jazz, but also yeah. you talk in the book about the electronification of soul, yeah. and, um, particularly Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions and the influence mm. of that album yeah. on you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the things that I kind of... Um, theories I vaguely advance in the book is the idea that like in when it's black British African American cultures there is much more of a kind of bent towards futurism um, as opposed to a lot of like white fans white musicians who perhaps tend to be more you know there's a strong bent towards kind of nostalgia and conservatism and I think if if you're black, if you've got the black experience, then you're not really going to go, oh, weren't the 40s great? Weren't the 50s great? Weren't the 60s great? No, there were terrible times, all of discrimination and violence and, and what have you. The present ain't much to write home about either, but the future, perhaps there's hope. And I think this is what kind of underpins some of the... Um, you know why? You know, like black musicians are sometimes more—not always, but sometimes you know—really more open to um, um, electronics. Having said that, I mean in jazz, so Sun Ra uh, was talking about and using various electronic keyboards and things like that quite early on in in, in his own jazz compositions from like the fifties onwards. It was all tied in with this extremely kind of eccentric. It was almost like the ancient and future, really, with black people having the first and the last and first word, really. You know, so there's a lot of ancient Egyptology, what have you, woven into it, as well as, but you know, tracks called things like Disco Three Thousand. You know, using electronic music in a way that kind of really is intended to be sort of disruptive and strange to signify like centuries hence and really getting away with anything to do with this planet. Um, that actually put him at odds with a lot of jazz people that use of electronics because jazz was supposed to be very much about, you know, acoustic, you know, like yeah, you didn't amplify, you didn't use electric means because you were supposed to be in conversation with the other musicians and therefore it had to be at a certain level. But um, he did that. He was, you know, he was shunned. He was a real kind of maverick. He really did sort of like really, you know, he struggled, you know, for audiences. In Europe, it wasn't so bad. He'd tour in Europe and he'd, you know, play respectable places. Then he'd go back to Philadelphia and play kind of free concerts in the park there to literally nobody. So um, he was a sort of prophet, not without honour, etc., etc. Now, then Miles Davis is obviously, he went electric in his own slightly different way. It was a lot of it was to do with like um, rock guitars as well as keyboards or whatever. He sort of certainly suffered a lot of censure from sort of purists and jazz fans or whatever, but he was a lot, lot more successful, you know, the way they did it, even though the music that he made is, is it's wonderful stuff. It's challenging. It's not, you know, I mean, it's, it's by no means the kind of crass compromise with populism you know popular musics that you know a lot of people would decry it as it, it's it's really involved in immersive music albums like bitches brew and in a silent way and then on the corner and i think it, it took actually perhaps a slightly later generation fully to appreciate um just how strong these albums were you know just how kind of involved and ingenious and in way that they kind of spliced together all of these different elements you know and created these kind of loose jams and then went back to the editing suite and created these extraordinary works so in a more populist bent then so mm. stevie wonders yeah absolutely i mean you know stevie wonder was definitely more more, more you know uh, more, more popular but again uh, with him it was the art of moog synthesizer and the moog synthesizer had been introduced um in 1967 at the monterey festival and it was used by various people you know in pop music it was used a bit by everybody from well the beatles obviously but simon and garfunkel used it a little bit on beach boys um the monkeys i think you know various people but it's almost like a little sort of bolt on it's a mm-hmm. sort of side thing and there's a sense that like yeah this is 
the instrument. Like yeah. yeah, yeah, but it's almost like the, the Moog is the instrument of the future, but not right now because right now in the late sixties, there was still kind of the hegemony of the um, the generally white, you know, male guitar rock hero and everything about the, all that kind of virtuosity. You know, the, the, those kind of you know, Led Zeppelin's, you know. Um, David Gilmour's, Jeff Beck's, Eric Clapton's, you know, it was completely, in a sense, antithetical to the sort of spirit of electronic music. You know, it was, it was about authenticity and sweat and labouring hard and, and sort of going right and down your fretboard, you know, and electronic music, as we've come to know, had nothing really to do with any of that. But that was still very much the dominating thing, and it was hard, therefore, for the mode to get a look in. But anyway, Stevie Wonder, he's introduced to um, these guys, um, Bob Margulov and Malcolm Cecil, who was Tonto's expanding headband. And he's just fascinated, and part of it is also, I think, to do with his blindness. Um, I mean, those, these instruments are very kind of volatile, whatever, and they require a lot of work and a lot of time and patience in the studio, and he had all of that. I mean, for one thing, he didn't really, being blind as he was, it didn't, day and night really <laughs> didn't necessarily mean a lot to him, you know, the way that he worked. And so he was quite happy to put in the hours upon hours of just immersing himself in these instruments. And what he did, and I think, you know, he did it for all time, really, is he showed that synthesizers weren't kind of cold, artificial, mechanical um, when applied to pop, you know, that they could really expand the sort of emotional lexicon of pop music. And he created these wonderfully sort of joyous, melancholic, limpid, deeply, deeply kind of soulful kind of pools of sounds on this series of albums starting with music of my mind going right through to songs in the key of life, really, in the mid-'70s, this extraordinary series of work. So... Thinking about that image of, of, of the band, you know, the, the four-piece guitar band, mm. we come to the point now, really, that, you know, a lot of, well, a lot of my favourite music is of the period of, you know, the late 70s, mm. early 80s, Joy Division, Human League, when this crossover was starting to happen of bands using synth- synthesizers yeah. appearing on top of the pops. And I want to talk about that sort of vexed question of authenticity because yeah. there clearly is. You know, obviously, Top of the Pops would have featured, you know, Legs and Co or whatever dancing to you know some disco music or something mm. probably on the on the same show. But nonetheless, there is clearly a difference between the performance of a band enacting out mm. that classic playing of the guitars mm. to somebody <coughs> standing on stage fundamentally still behind a box. Yeah. I mean, there was a deep suspicion about, you know, with this proper music. Queen on their albums in the 70s said no synthesizers were used in the making of this album, as if that was cheating somehow. <laughs> and again, it goes back to the idea of authenticity and the guitarist. You know, there always has with this spectacle of, like, honest effort and, and sweat and labour or whatever and toil. You know, part of it, I mean, none of it is particularly necessary. It's all part of the theatre. Um, and, and when David Ball, out of Soft Cell, when he applied to the Musicians' Union, um, you know, the Musicians' Union, he was rejected because we put down his choice of instrument synthesizer. That's not music, as far as they were concerned. Later on, he said, you know, you said, well, anybody can get you know, DJs and you know, join the Musicians' Union, which would be unheard of. So attitudes disappeared. But certainly at that point, that, that was the opinion. I think two things really changed actually was well two maybe three things really i suppose craft uh, and kraut rock or whatever was progenitor to punk you know and punk really exploded the whole ideas of like sort of white male virtuosity as the kind of be all and end all um and with punk it was about ideas rather than about aptitude well that falls 
wonderfully into the lap of light if you're composing electronic music and it, you know it's organized sound it's about ideas it's putting that next to that it's doing this rather than that it's not about how fast you can run your fingers up and down the keyboard the other thing was the price of synthesizers absolutely plummeted they were very very expensive and they were very hard to kind of access in the late 60s early 70s so yeah you sort of think of like you know Emerson Lake and Palmer or yeah. Jean-Michel Jarre you know surrounded yeah, totally, by yeah. banks great. and banks yeah and, and this is it and, it, and it, at that point yeah and they, they, are, they do make for a very kind of remote spectacle really you can't imagine you know like all these little kids like, let's go home and form a synth band you know after seeing something like that and I think the band maybe by Tangerine Dream I think really mm-hmm. made a lot of the sort of the sense of like yes behold the majesty and grandeur of our stacked synths or whatever um, so yes it did seem a kind of rather remote project uh, prospect but um, but no once synths since came down the price and then you get this explosion really from Robert Rental and the Normal to um, Gary Newman Depeche Mode or whatever it's easy just you know just go and just go and grab a synth you know and, and, and form a band and um yeah, and then you do get, you know, in the early 80s, you know, that whole kind of wonderful explosion of sort of synth, you know, of synth pop or whatever. Another great thing, I think, about electronic music is that, um, talking earlier on about women pioneers, and increasingly, I suspect there's a lot, despite the nerdiness of the world of electronic music and sort of some of the blokes involved in it, I think that because electronic music isn't gendered in a way, in a sense, the way that rock music is, or even jazz to an extent, that it made it easier for women to participate or whatever. There's also a sort of a gay component as well, you know, perhaps with the association of discos and things like that or whatever. And so as, as well as sort of supplanting the guitar, you're supplanting sort of traditional male roles in music and male types. Um, the other thing that happens is, I mean, we've mentioned, you know, a couple of bands, the Human League, Depeche Mode, Joy Division, you know, they are mm. bands, there's a whole oh, bunch yeah. of them. But one thing that comes out of this period of time is the ubiquity of the pop duo, Mm. Yes, absolutely. This sort of yin, yin and yang thing. And I was mentioning suicide earlier on. And in a sense, they perhaps inaugurate that because they'd been operative since late 60s, early 70s or whatever. And they brought, I mean, they were in a sense a rock band, but they brought rock down to its absolute it's, it's, in essence, you know, um, one man on making the noise, one man singing, you know. And Martin Rev, the keyboard, you know, the keyboardist with um, Suicide, is this very kind of, you know, he wore this kind of black visor and is a very kind of stock still present on stage. And Alan Vega is this kind of incredibly theatrical, self-harming kind of channeling the spirit of Elvis, blah, 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 screaming, you know, histrionic. And I think, you know, that yin-yang thing, you get that quite a lot, really. That runs through the, sub- the subsequent synth duos, you know, in so- Soft Cell or whatever, you know, the sort of da sort of presence of David Ball and the flamboyant. Um, you know, Mark Almond and um, and in Sparks actually, even though they've been around since the mid seventies, they slimmed down to the male brothers, and then you got the kind, you know, the, the, the glowering like a sort of little Hitler on the keyboards, and then the big and the, like, the Pet Shop Boys once again. So Anything it becomes a similar sort Clark, of thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's always you know that wonderful kind of yin and yang thing. It's almost that way of like you know that that sort of you know, and essentially comes in crap with you know, man mm. and machine or whatever you know, and one you know you've got a human machine, and then you've got somebody who kind of is very very. You know, extra human or whatever on 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 vocals. So yeah, that that does provide a kind of nice one. It does sort of, it does. It also, there is always an un- slightly unfortunate thing with electronic music in terms of, I think from time immemorial that this is going to put people out of a job. <laughs> and of course, it did. You know, at certain points, there's rather there's this rather almost slightly comical footage of um, in the seventies, um, Donna Summer performing "I Feel Love." But instead of it just being her and like, you know, somebody more and more playing a synth or whatever, you've got a kind of little BBC orchestra or type orchestra, you know, in the, in the pit, you know, just sawing furiously away on, on their violins or whatever, just kind of create that kind of sequencer effect. Um, yeah. And I mean, you know, that, 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 that is, you know, it is an unfortunate um, 
aspect of I suppose the history of electronic music is that yes, it does sort of preclude or the need for um, you know. And so, just to finish off, now electronic music is pretty much mm. ubiquitous, and indeed, again, if we think of EDM as as pretty much replaced rock music as the big stadium filling right, yeah. spectacle now if mm. indeed the dreams of those early pioneers you know we're not on mars these things yeah come true what what does the future hold it, it, it's, yeah for the music it, it is it feels almost like a kind of quandary because i suppose that you know that it isn't necessarily a success story when electronic music achieves ubiquitousness because it's not like humanity has kind of evolved or travelled well, you know, in multiple places or we have achieved anything like kind of utopia or whatever or explored the cosmos or any of the sort of the germs of these notions that were carried with these kind of waves of music or whatever. And it, it kind of... I mean, part of the title implies on my part a certain wistfulness for leaving the 20th century, which is why one of my favourite 21st century artists is Burial because his music is almost like a kind of equivalent of like Goldsmith's Deserted Village or something like that, except with Rave and something like that. Um, yeah, so definitely, I mean, Rave, there was a similar, I think that what happened in the late 80s, after all the sort of fragmentation and tribalism that followed punk, people wanted to gather en masse again, the way you used to do in the late 60s with Woodstock or whatever, and there's a huge appetite for that, and I think that's what led to the Stone Roses and thing later Oasis, but also to Rave or whatever. People just want to be together and be as one whatever and and you know the kind of you know acid house or whatever you know was was you know beat making you know was absolutely again ideal for that and that kind of carried through really to um edm and we may even be getting to the post edm stage and again you know i suppose in this sort of paradoxical situation where it feels like there's too much happening and nothing is happening, you know, because there's nothing sort of big and singular and obvious that's kind of like everybody's at this common talking point, a la the Beatles or whatever. So it is a curious kind of quandary. But when you talk about the future, I think a lot of genres, like, for instance, well, say, let's take rock, classical, jazz, they all reached a sort of terminus, a sort of ecological crisis point where they, could, they couldn't really develop any further without mutating into something avant-garde. I mean, it happens to jazz with the sort of Ornick Collins phase, classical music or whatever, you know, post-war. And, and with rock, it probably happened with something like My Bloody Valentine in the 90s or whatever. You know, in all of these things, it's like, if you're going to be popular and, you know, if you want mainstream access playing this music, you're going to have to kind of revert back to older styles. Or just, you know, be way, way out there on the avant-garde and listen to by nobody or whatever. Now, electronic music, I think there's a kind of, there's an openness to it. And I think that any kind of future now, you know, it's in terms of its sonic malleability or whatever, in terms of like the people pushing it forward, who need to push it forward by that, are probably, you know, black British or whatever, African-American, who have, you know, that kind of futuristic mindset. Anything that happens in the future, that that is where it's going to happen. And I think pretty much... Most other sort of electronic electronic genres are now at the stage where they're kind of museum pieces, really. So I've been talking to David Stubbs. We've been talking about his latest book, Mars by 1980, the story of electronic music, which is out in paperback now from Faber. David, thank you so much for coming back in and telling us about it. Thanks very much for having me along. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.